Romans 12, 1 and 2 informs us that as we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice in worship, He will transform our minds and we will demonstrate God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. In other words, God's will is revealed to us as a result of our worship to Him. Have you ever considered the link between worship and God's will? In our corporate church life, we gather for worship. We sing hymns, we pray, we give our offerings, and we hear God's word preached. But have we actually taken the time to consider how those actions are transforming our mind? Are those actions transforming our mind? Or are we simply just going through the motions? If our heart is truly in those actions, if we truly are focused on exalting God, lifting God up, having God change us and transform us, then our singing of hymns and our prayers and our giving of offering and hearing God's word preached is going to be transformative. And in being transformative, it's going to enable us to do God's will. But if we're simply going through the motions, there's going to be no change. There's going to be no transformation. And so we need to ask, not only do we consider how these actions transform our mind, but are we actually striving to worship and therefore be transformed into, to do God's will? Or are we simply satisfied with going through the motions? Psalm 81 addresses this issue. In the psalm, Israel worshiped God and God reveals his will. Often, Israel would open their hearts in praise and God would remind them of what he had done in the past. And then he would remind them to continue to submit to him. And so long as they responded in obedience, God would lift his judgment upon them and restore them, uh, or restore his blessing upon them. But there were often times when Israel, though they worshipped God, were not doing his will. See, their worship was just ritual. They were just going through the motions. And that's why so often times we'll read from the prophets that God says, you know, I despise your worship, I despise your sacrifices. Because worship without a right heart attitude fails God. It's not worship. When we worship and we're just worshiping to do the thing we're supposed to do, we're worship because, well, what else do I do on a Sunday? Or what else do I do on any given day of the week? Or if we're worshiping simply because, well, that's my tradition, you know, then what does that mean to you? How does that change your life? How does that affect you? How does that inform you? in your relationship with God. You cannot truly know God's will. You will not be, have your mind renewed or be transformed if your worship to God is not right. Now, according to the inscription of Psalm 81, this is a psalm of Asaph, and it was written for the Giddith. Now, the Giddith was a, either a musical instrument or a kind of music that is derived from the city of Gath, the Philistine city of Gath, where David had hid during his uh, flight from Saul. As well, the inscription tells us this was written for the choir director, indicating that it was to be sung as part of Israel's worship. Now, the statement in verse 3 about the new moon and the full moon and the feast day indicates that this particular psalm was sung at a particular feast. The reference to the new moon uh, points to the Feast of Trumpets as the particular feast. Trumpets celebrated on the first day of the seventh month of Tishra. The reference to the full moon would then point to the event that happened 15 days later, which would be uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And so we see that Psalm 81 is not only a song of worship, but it's a warning. It's a song of worship and warning. And the warning is this. If our worship isn't right, then we will not expect God's blessing. And the reason we can't expect God's blessing is because our worship hasn't transformed us. Our worship hasn't renewed our mind. And therefore, we can't do what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5, and let's look at the call to worship. He says, Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph. When he went through the land of Egypt, I heard a language that I did not know. Verse 1 summons God's people to praise, to worship. And worship is to be robust, like troops rejoicing over a victory in battle. You know, first thing you want to do with your worship is check, what's my attitude? When I worship God, whether it's my singing or my giving or my praying or my praising or, or whatever, what, is, is my attitude one of joy, one of excitement, or is it ho-hum? Is it, oh, got to go through this doldrum again. And it's not so much that worship is to be entertaining to us. It's not an entertainment venue. But worship is something that we're supposed to be giving to God. Our worship should be as excited as troops returning from battle in victory. Israel was to sing aloud, that's to express public joy, give a ringing cry to God who is her strength. Notice that worship is to include a joyful shout. That's literally a war cry, a shout in triumph to the God of Jacob, namely to the God who is her deliverer. And then after defining what is to be done in verse 1, there's a brief elaboration on how it's to be done. Notice singing is to be accompanied by timbrel, lyre, and, and harp. Now, there are people today who reject the idea or the notion that uh, instruments should be used in worship. That's bogus. This is just one example of many throughout the scriptures of where musical instruments were used in worship to God. Now, we're not discussing how they're used, but... The fact of the matter is, how they're used is the secondary issue. The primary issue is that when we sing, our singing is to be accompanied by the playing of musical instruments. Now, the, we have the timbrel here, which would be the same as the timbrel today. The word lyre here actually refers to what we would call the harp today. And the word translated as harp actually refers to the lute or a guitar that has a bulging uh, resonance body at its lower end. And what we see here when they're making a sweet sound, okay, they're making melody with these musical instruments, that it tells us that their worship wasn't random. It was orderly. A melody has order to it. A melody is something that everyone can sing along to. Next, the trumpet is to be sounded. Now, again, this was marking the Feast of Trumpets the, that inaugurates the seventh month of the year, prepares for the Feast of Tabernacles that follows at the full moon. But notice that the trumpet is sounded. Again, there's a call to worship. There's a distinction. This horn is being played to announce that, hey, worship's about to begin. 
the music that's about to follow, the, the singing that's about to follow, the preaching that's about to follow, everything that's about to follow is to be distinct and set apart to God. It's to be given to God. It's not about what we get out of it. It's what we are giving to God. It's drawing us to attention. And what God wants from us, first and foremost in our worship, is excitement, joy, rejoicing. Now again, we can try to manufacture that. We can use various things to create an emotional response, but that's not what God wants here. God wants something that comes out of each and every one of our hearts, that derives from a right relationship with Him, that derives from specific truths about who God is and what He has done, which we'll see in a moment. These celebrations, the Feast of Trumpets and Tabernacles, were grounded in revelation. God gave a decree, a law, regarding these uh, feast days and how they were to be carried out. And God's point was they're not to be performed in blind obedience merely because God says to do them. You're not to come and worship because just out of blind obedience. Well, God said so. There ought to be more to it than that. It ought to be the response of your mind and of your heart and of your strength, a response to what God has done. See, they are a testimony established or set in Joseph, which witnesses to the Exodus, when he went throughout the land of Egypt with the plagues. In other words, they, 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 those feast days were given to mark and remind them to give God the worship that was due him, to shout joyfully over the victory that God had given them over Egypt. Now, of course, they also have a revelatory purpose in pointing us to Christ as well. But they came to those days of worship to look back at what God had done. And looking back at what God has done, they were moved to shout joyfully. They were moved to rejoice. Think about the fact that Christ has delivered us from the power of sin and death. And if your attitude to that is to still sit there with a frown on your face, a scowl on your face, and not be moved, then it's not my problem, but your problem. It's not anybody else's problem. It's upon you. It's coming upon you to examine your own heart and find out why the revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't move you. Why the revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't excite you. Why the revelation of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection doesn't warm your heart. The call here in verses 1 through 5 to worship is a call to hearty praise in the context of worship that is established as a testimony to God's delivering his people. And that's what our worship is to be. A call to hearty praise in the context of our redemption from sin. Now following this call to worship is a chiding for waywardness. See, Israel, much like us, went wayward. We have a tendency of doing the same thing. Nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. Verse 6 to 12. I relieved his shoulders of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord, or I the Lord am your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. 
So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. As Israel worshiped, God now speaks. God responds. He declares that he lifted Israel's burden. He delivered them from bondage. He spoke to them and tested them in the wilderness. And all of that is part of God's saving work to us who believe. See, first of all, believer, there is a burden lifted. Israel's shoulder is freed from the weight of slave city building. Moreover, the baskets carrying the clay and straw for bricks are dropped. This liberation points to Jesus who bids the weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Second, God responded to Israel's cry in trouble and delivered her. Not only did he set her free, she, he brought, she is brought out again and again. Jesus delivers us from the devil. He delivers us from the penalty and power of sin. He delivers us from the wrath to come. Third, God speaks to Israel, answering her in the secret place of thunder, giving her his law, a reference to Sinai. Likewise, Jesus reveals the Father to us and shows us his will. Fourth, God proves or test examined Israel at the waters of Meribah. While Israel tried to test him, complaining for their lack of water, it was really God who was testing her, revealing her contentious ungrateful heart. You see, my friends, as we walk with Jesus through the sufferings of this life, we too are going to be tested and tried and purified. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 3-5, tribulation produces character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As God speaks... He lifts our burdens, delivers us from sin, answers our cry with His word and proves our faith. That's redemption. That's what's supposed to be fueling our worship. But notice here that Israel, that God calls Israel rather to put down her idols. God is the heart of worship. But Israel though they were still going through the motions of worship, their focus wasn't on God. Their focus was on themselves or on other things. And that's why God says, Hear, O my people, if you will listen to me. What will God do? He will admonish Israel. He says, I'm going to witness against them. See, the warning that follows implies that idols have crept in. They were, not, they were given a command to not even permit a foreign god in the land, much less worship it. You know... There's the command, don't worship any gods, but you know what? Don't even let them in the door. What kind of idols are in your life? What kind of things have your attention that are drawing your attention away from the worship of God? You know, why was Israel not to allow a foreign god into the land, much less to worship it? Because Yahweh had redeemed Israel out of the land of Egypt. She is exclusively his. And moreover, it is Yahweh who filled Israel's mouth. That is, it was God who satisfied her. And therefore, God concludes, open your mouth wide. You see, this is always our temptation. We're always being tempted to allow other things into our heart which want to replace the living God. And that's why John concluded in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You say, well, I don't have any statues that I bow down and worship to. Maybe not. But are there things in your life that are taking the preeminence over, over God and His worship? Are there things in your life that are more important to you than what God wants from you? If so, it's an idol. And you need to cleanse that idol from your way. You need to get it out of your house. You need to get it out of your car. You need to get it out of your whatever, wherever you've got it hiding. You see, the human mind, as John Calvin said, is a permanent factory of idols. We're constantly thinking of other things that want to take the place of God. 
And again, in and of themselves, there may not be anything wrong with them. TV. There's nothing inherently wrong with the television, but what we put on the television may be wrong. But not even that. You may say, well, I don't put anything, I don't put anything evil on my TV. Okay. But is your television time keeping you from your worship time? Is your television time keeping you from something God would have you to do? That's just one example. I mean, you can fill it in with whatever it may be. God speaks in verse 7, but Israel refused to heed. And like a rejected lover, God concludes that his people would have none of me. They won't yield to me. And so Yahweh gives them up to their own hard hearts, the stubbornness of their heart. Since they've refused his way, they'll have to walk in their own way. And all they hear is their own voice chattering. This is God's passive wrath. He's letting them go their own way. Paul writes in Romans 1, 18 and 24, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Therefore also God gives them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. My friends, there is no greater judgment upon those who have heard God's voice than the silence of abandonment for God to give us over to our own ungodliness. And so if God's speaking, listen. But don't just listen to what he has to say. Heed what he has to say and do it lest he gives you over to your own uncleanness. So there is a call to worship. There's also a chiding for waywardness. You know, if, if you're evaluating your worship and you're saying, well, you know, my worship's not what it ought to be, then maybe you have to find out why. Are you wayward? Is there something in your life that's taken the place of God? It could even be your own self. You know, I feel this and I feel that. Listen, the pe moment people begin to say what they feel, you got trouble, okay? Because the heart is desperately wicked. We can't necessarily trust what we feel. We have to make decisions based on truth, biblical truth, regardless of whether we feel it or not. The Bible says to him that knoweth to do right and doeth it not, it is sin. But, but, but pastor, you don't understand, it just didn't feel right. Uh, was it didn't matter if it felt right does if do you know it to be right and you didn't do it it's sin finally let's look at the verses 13 to 16 the cost for wandering oh that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time of punishment would be forever but I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you God's crying out in pain and longing for Israel to hear his word and walk in his ways. And my friends, this is a summary of the life of faith. By faith we heard God's voice. By faith we obey him. As Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. And will come to him and make our home with him. If Israel would so respond, God says, I'll reverse your fortunes. I will subdue your enemies. I'll turn my hand against them. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission, will literally cringe to Him in fear, and their fate will endure forever. How have you responded to God? Do you love Him? Oh, I love Him. Well, are you keeping His word? Uh, hmm. That's where, it, that's where the hammer hits the nail, isn't it? See, there's a cost for wandering. You want to wander away from God? You want to go and do your own thing, your way? God says you can do that, but there's going to be a cost. And the cost is He's going to turn us back to you, He's going to draw his hand away from you. He's going to leave you to your own devices. But if you'll return to him, if you'll come back and worship him the way he wants to be worshipped, he'll reverse his fortune, your fortunes. He'll turn his face once again to you. 
He'll put his hand of blessing upon you. He'll guard and direct your way. He'll deliver you. You know, in these final promises, we see what salvation is. You know, on the negative side, we're saved from sin, Satan, and death. But on the positive side, we are saved for all the goodness and blessing of God. Jesus himself is this blessing to us. And he promises that whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Jesus is the blessing of eternal life. And so as we think about this psalm, this song of worship and warning, You've been given two warnings. If you're wandering, turn back. If you're wayward, get going the right way. Whatever has your attention, confess it, forsake it, and turn back to God. Examine your worship. Why do you worship? How do you worship? When do you worship? Where do you worship? All very important questions that you need to ask and answer. And I can sit here and give you all the answers, but the reality is you already know the answers. First thing is look at how you worship. If you're just going through the ceremony, if you're just going through the routine, there's a problem on the heart level. There's something in your heart that's not right. Now, I don't know if it's because you're just not saved, or you've got an idol, or if you've just gone the other way from God. Whatever it is, find out. And if it's a case of you're just not saved, then I would challenge you as you're listening now to confess and forsake your sins, repent before the holy God, and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he died, shed his blood, buried, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. He died and shed his blood to cover your sins, to make atonement with God. If you're listening and you're saying, well, you know, I'm saved, but you know what? There is something in my life that I deem more important than God. There's something in my life that I'm putting before him. If he's revealed that to you, then friend, don't trifle with God. He will not be mocked. If he's revealed something in your life that's not right, then you need to get rid of it. It will be hard. It will not be easy. It will require discipline. But get rid of that idol. Get rid of that thing that keeps you from worshiping God the way you should. And finally, maybe you've identified the fact that you have walked away from God. God is still there calling, sinner, come home. And so if you've identified the fact that you've walked away from God, he didn't walk away from you, you walked away from God, turn about and run back. And as you do, as you get rid of those idols, as you come back to God, he'll restore your joy. And he'll transform your worship from going through the motion to shouting with great joy. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for the word that you've given to us, Lord. And that, Father, it's good for us to constantly examine ourselves. It's easy for us to get caught up, Father, in, in the motions of things and just going through the, through the routine. And, Father, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would uh, cause us to examine our worship. That, Lord, if our worship is nothing more than just going through motions, going through the routine, that, Father, we might forsake that. That we might... Uh, uh, examine ourselves to see what's what what we are doing that is uh, or not doing that is causing that. Lord, if we have lost the joy of our worship, then Father, help us to find the idol in our life that uh, has replaced that joy. Father, if if we just have wandered away from you and gone after other things, then Lord, I pray that you'd show us those things, that we may forsake those things and return to you. Father, I pray that you'd give us the joy of our salvation. I pray that you'd give us the joy of worship. 
and that, Lord, you would fill us not just with, you know, a, a, a feeling for a moment that is fleeting, but with truth, that we will have joy based on truth, that regardless of our circumstances or happenstances, we'll never lose, that even in the midst of tribulation, we can rejoice in you. We pray in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.